Hello and welcome to Through the Lens of Recovery, the podcast that digs into the issues, stories and triumphs that surround addiction. I'm Annie Murray, founder of Horizon, a not-for-profit filmmaking program that teaches those in recovery from addiction how to create compelling stories through the medium of film. And I'm Sophie Turton, co-founder of The Joyful, a brand and marketing agency for purpose-driven businesses. In this episode, we were absolutely thrilled to welcome William Porter, author of Alcohol Explained, the definitive groundbreaking guide to alcohol and alcoholism. We explored the science behind addiction, the myths and mistruths surrounding alcohol and addiction, and what it's like to live in a culture obsessed with booze. William comes at the conversation around addiction, particularly focusing on alcohol from a scientific perspective. As such, this interview is chock full of facts about what alcohol is, how it affects us all, no matter how much we drink, and what to do if you're feeling trapped by booze. We hope you enjoy our interview with William. So I am extremely excited by today's guest, um, William Porter, who is the author of Alcohol Explained, which was actually the book that for me really changed the way that I thought about and um, and, and experienced alcohol. Um, so welcome, William, and thank you so much for, for writing this book. <laughs> thank you for asking me on the podcast. <laughs> Glad you liked the book. I, suppose I thought you, you were going to say thank you for otherwise. asking me to write the book. <laughs> <laughs> I came into your dreams in 2015. <laughs> yeah, 2015. Um, so let's just jump straight in and, um, you know, tell us about what is Alcohol Explained um, and, and what's the journey been uh, since you wrote the book to now? Um, so the book's about alcohol. It just kind of does what it says on the tin, I suppose. It just explains what alcohol does. Um, and I think crucially what it doesn't do. And it kind of explains how it moves from being something we kind of experiment with to something we enjoy to a necessity and more and more of a necessity as time goes by. Um, and also, I suppose, why people a lot of people have a difficult relationship with it. I mean, forget the chronically alcohol addicted or dependent. Um, It's just a lot of people struggle with it to varying degrees, even if it's just accidentally ending up more drunk than they intend to on a regular or even rare occasion. Um, So it was just to go through all of that, really. Um, And so, yeah, so the book was published. So since then, since 2015, um, it's kind of snowball to be honest it's just grown and grown and grown um and it's been really interesting for myself as well because I think when I sat down to write the book I rather arrogantly (laughs) thought I had a fairly good idea of alcohol and how it worked but actually writing it was quite cathartic because I think they quite often say if you want to know something really well teach it but actually I think writing about it does a similar thing because as you go over it you sort of articulate it in a different way and spot um, missing pieces and all the rest of it. Um, and yeah, as I say, it's just sort of snowballed from there. Fantastic. So, you know, putting you on the spot a little bit, and if you're listening to this, we definitely recommend reading the book. Um, but tell us about alcohol. What is this substance that we all love and cherish as a culture so, so much? (laughs) So this, this is one of the key things with it. Um, alcohol is a, it's a depressant, it's a sedative, Okay, and when I use the word uh, a depressant, I'm using it in its physiological chemical sense as something that decreases or inhibits nerve activity. So obviously, when we drink alcohol, we feel slightly calmer, slightly more relaxed afterwards. And I think most people are kind of on board with that. But where I think a lot of people's knowledge starts to fall down is how the brain reacts to alcohol, because our brain has a huge array of its own chemicals, drugs and hormones. Um, And we don't even we humans don't even have a complete list of all these, let alone do we understand how they all interact with one another. But what we do know is the brain works by way of something called homeostasis, which is a fancy word for just basically a balance of all these different chemicals, drugs and hormones. So when you take something like alcohol, which is a sedative, your your brain reacts to it. 
Um, and what it amounts to, it essentially it becomes hypersensitive, so it can work under the sedating effects of the alcohol. So it does things like it releases cortisol and adrenaline. You know, these are stimulants and stress hormones to counter the sedating effects of the alcohol. So when the alcohol wears off, that oversensitization, those stimulants hang around for a bit. Um, and the best way of describing it is it's like when you've drunk too much caffeine, you feel on edge, you can't sleep, you don't feel particularly good. Um, and that is to all intents and purposes, alcohol withdrawal. And a lot of people kind of struggle with that concept because they think of alcohol withdrawal as something that only in inverted commas, alcoholics get, you know, people who are alcohol dependent, but actually everyone gets alcohol withdrawal just to a greater or lesser degree. Um, my definition of withdrawal is it's an unpleasant feeling caused by a chemical imbalance that is itself caused by the previous dose of the drug wearing off. Um, and that's what anxiety is, that colloquial term for that anxious, unpleasant feeling you get the morning after or the day after you've been drinking. Um, it also explains the 4am wake ups that drinkers get. You know, when you drink and you wake up at like three, four in the morning, really anxious, and you can't get back to sleep it's that alcohol withdrawal, it's that chemical imbalance. Now, there's two ways of getting rid of that withdrawal. One is to never drink again. And after a few days, your brain chemistry gets back to normal and you go on <laughs> to lead a, you know, a happy life. <laughs> but a much quicker way of getting rid of it is to take another drink. Because if you think about it, your brain's geared up to work under the sedating effects of the alcohol. The alcohol's not there. So it's kind of racing ahead, jumping all over the place. So actually, when you take another drink, you feel a lot better for it. Um, and that's really where the, the chemical dependency comes in. And that basic mechanism underlies much, much of the pleasure we perceive in drinking. Um, and as you can see, it's, it's a false pleasure because when you're a regular daily mm. drinker, that pleasure is just relieving that unpleasant feeling that the previous dose of the drug caused. You know, daily drinkers really look forward to their glass of wine or whatever of an evening as well they should because it gives them a lovely relaxed feeling that we who do not drink have all the mm. time you make this sound so simple i mean <laughs> yeah. that's what i mean oh, that's why it blew my mind where were you six years ago i mean i think many people will you know obviously love to delve into the book and find out more depths of this but it really is science a scientific look in the, at the chemicals that go on in our body and what i was listening to is that of course you know it's a sedative you said first and foremost um but you know my, my connotation with drinking is that you get quite lively and you want to dance all night and you're up till four five six o'clock in the morning and that's purely on alcohol you know know sometimes other things but um you know the, the, this whole thing of the the body is counterbalancing i'm just going to reiterate what you said basically yeah. and go on to a question for you but the body is an amazing thing and what it's doing is it's trying to counterbalance this kind of poisonous toxic drug in our system uh, alcohol being a drug of course um and so that overriding chemical it must be quite a, a roller coaster of massive amounts of chemicals coming in and out of your body that your body really shouldn't be producing or over producing so is this why the kind of the after effect of alcohol does take several days even after one night of a, a boozy night say my friend has one on a friday night you know by monday tuesday this is still going to be having an effect yeah exactly yeah it will go on for a few days another key thing it does of course is interrupt our sleep so i won't go into too much detail unless you want me to but um what our sleep well, when we when we humans sleep we go through different sleep cycles and one of the main differentiating differentiating features between these sleep cycles is how deeply unconscious we are so there's deep sleep where as you would expect you're very deeply unconscious but there's also at the, under, the other end of the scale, something called REM sleep, yes. which is rapid eye movement sleep. Now, that's where mm. we dream. Now, when they've put attached sensors to people and monitored them in REM sleep, their brain lights up almost as if they're fully awake. Hmm. Again, we don't really understand much about REM sleep. It's a bit of an unknown for yeah. us at the moment. Um, but what we do know is it's crucial. So they've done tests on rats where they've starved them of REM sleep and they've been dead within a few weeks. 
they've wow. done human clinical trials where they they basically monitor you and when you go into REM sleep they wake you up so you don't get REM sleep one of the problems with the trials is people drop out of them it's very hard to get people who finish it because people could become very depressed and disorientated so we don't know much about REM sleep, but it's crucial. Now, when you drink al- when you don't drink alcohol, you get on average six or seven rounds of REM sleep. When you're drinking, you get two on average. And the reason for that is for the first part of the night, because you've taken this chemical sedative, your brain can't get you up into that higher level of consciousness where you get REM sleep. And of course, after about five hours, the withdrawal kicks in and you're sort of incapable of sleeping at all. Now, right. that's another so, reason you're not sorry, you're not just taking, talking about the brain chemistry, but one night's drinking will ruin your sleep. And then it takes a few nights to get back on top of it. So you're absolutely right. Just, having, you know, getting yeah, drunk once a week. You're going to really in- suffer with, with sadness and depression and, 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 yeah. and probably wonder why and not connect the two, yes. perhaps. But uh, my, my question, actually, because I, I became a, a real dependent drinker, daily dependent drinker. So for me, I didn't have breaks. I didn't have breaks at all. Um, So for me, sleep was a rare thing. It would be 10 minutes maybe of passing out. Or I wasn't counting, to be honest. It might have been an hour here, an hour there. But literally, as soon as I woke, uh, I just downed another drink. And I was drinking to blackout constantly throughout the day, 24-7, for many, many months, if not years. Well, yes, years. So how how did my body get any sleep at all was you know was my brain starved of this decent sleep you know was I that lab rat you know yeah I mean obviously yeah no it's I mean obviously impossible to say for definite you Mm. do get some levels of REM sleep but it's just not enough but that's exactly what you're doing um it's just that that constant drinking but of course what you've just described that that constant drinking is actually actually the natural tendency with alcohol right. because the withdrawal is not a pleasant thing um, <laughs> exactly we want to relieve it so so the, the you know the, the end game for most people is on on the basis you don't like feeling unpleasant and you like to feel relaxed and happy is that constant drinking because i did a similar thing i never drank every day but when I drank, I would drink 24-7. So like Friday night, I'd get in from work and start drinking. Mm. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, unable to get back to sleep and have a few more drinks to get back to sleep and then wake mm. up Saturday morning and just start drinking again. So I did a similar thing, but not constantly for months. I'd do it for like two, three, four days and then stop for a bit and then go back into it. But that's basically, yeah, the natural place where you'll end up. And I found interestingly um, in terms of the the time, because I think – there's this misconception that oh as I get older I my hangovers get worse they last for like three days and and reading your book my understanding was actually it's not about how old you are it's because you've been drinking for longer you you know and that your your body is becoming more and more and more actually equipped to deal with the alcohol more and more and more effectively which then takes longer and longer and longer for the the, the cortisol and the adrenaline to burn out of your system to feel back to that stasis, uh, homeostasis effect. And I would find that I'd have a binge, then I would go for about three days and I'd be able to deal with it until towards the end of the third day when it became unbearable and I'd have the binge again. And that was my cycle for years and years. It would be, and I would tell myself, I don't have a drink problem because I'm not doing it every day. But it was a trap. It felt constantly. And I started to measure it of like, it is every three days, sometimes every day on the weekend, but every three days I'd start to feel like I couldn't handle it any longer and I'd have a drink again. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you're quite correct. So when you start drinking, as in the first time in your life you drink alcohol, your brain's never encountered it before. You've just never encountered alcohol. So it's limited what your brain can do with it, which is why when you first start drinking, you can get drunk quite easily. But we we humans are great adapters. And the more you're constantly putting this substance into yourself, the better your brain, the more proficient your brain becomes at countering it. So that's there's three knock-on effects from that. The first one being that you need more alcohol to get the same effect. Secondly, your tolerance goes up and that's what tolerance is. You know, everyone knows that after drinking for 10 years, you can drink more alcohol than when you first started. But not many people actually stop and try and think, why is that the case? The answer is that your brain becomes much more proficient at countering the sedating effects of the alcohol. Now, the problem there is 
when the alcohol wears off, the withdrawal is worse because, you know, if you drink a glass of wine, your brain's, you know, um, countering one glass of wine. So you've got one glass of wine's withdrawal, if you like. But if you're drinking two or three bottles or four bottles or a bottle of spirits, there's a correspondingly increased amount of withdrawal. It really is a simple, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So mm. whatever sedating, anaesthetizing effect you get from alcohol, you get a corresponding feeling of anxiety as it wears off. So as the years mm. go by, you naturally tend to drink more and the hangovers get worse and worse. Mm. And certainly in early recovery, I think one of the most common things people who uh, experience going through withdrawal detox, you get there and you are just smothered and riddled with anxiety, which takes mm. years. I must admit, it's, it's something you learn to manage. It's not something that goes away necessarily, but we all learn to deal with this high level of anxiety. And what you're saying there is that after many sort of years of abuse of, of, of alcohol, uh, this anxiety is, is a state in which the body has found itself and it's almost comfortable being, it knows how to be there. It's become mm. normal to the body. So, you know, can we sort of repair that state of anxiety? I mean, do you, do you delve into that in your book at all? Yeah, so so I don't go much into sort of more the, the mental state, but certainly the physiological side, that immediate after mm. effect, a lot of that anxiety is that chemical imbalance. And right. that is what I try to emphasise with particularly like really heavy drinkers and more alcohol dependent people, that massive anxiety you get a lot, not all of it, but a lot of it is mm. chemically driven as the withdrawal and it does get better after a few days. Yeah, so I mean, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. I mean, this whole book is full of some really interesting scientific data that you've pulled together. And I, you know, I applaud you on how you've put this across and you're so eloquent, eloquent with you, with your words. <laughs> um, but what, what, what would you say was the most profound piece of data that you've met that you could hit people with and kind of go, here's what I've learned. It's huge. I, apart from what we've just spoken about, I think the other thing that is key is cravings, because right. what we've just talked about is like, if you like the chemical and the withdrawal side of alcohol, and there might be people listening to that saying, well, hang on, but you know, I only ever, or I know this is quite often what you hear. I know people and they just have one or two and they never want to drink more. <laughs> so it kind of creates this it feeds into this belief that there's the in inverted commas alcoholic so there's someone sort of born with this spiritual genetic whatever deficiency mm -hmm. which means they are going to become addicted to alcohol but what I discovered was there is a tipping point okay it's not to do so much with the withdrawal, but it's to do with that craving process. Because what happens when we drink alcohol and it wears off, it leaves an unpleasant feeling that if you have another alcoholic drink, we'll get rid of that feeling. And that's sort of the chemical physiological basis for addiction to drugs. Mm. Now, the, the strange thing with alcohol is we have very, very strict rules about when we do and don't drink it. Um, not necessarily articulated rules, but like if you're sat there talking to a group of 200 people about their drinking, and I emphasize here, not people that are necessarily believe they've got a problem with alcohol. And you say, right, put your hands up who drinks alcohol. You're probably going to get 90% of them putting their hands up. Mm. If you say who drinks alcohol first thing in the morning, nobody mm -hmm. puts their hands up. And this is one <laughs> of the things we have where, and, and this is what I'm talking about, almost like subconscious rules mm. with alcohol. We just don't do it in the morning. So if you take someone who has had two or three glasses of wine the night before, they will not have slept properly and mm. they will have that level of anxiety. Okay. If they woke up in the morning and had a drink, had a glass of wine, they would feel much better. They'd be anaesthetizing the tiredness. They'd be correcting that chemical imbalance. Mm. They'd feel fantastic. Mm. Okay. But they don't think about it. And this is where the craving process comes in. This is the, the psychological side of it. This is when we start to obsess and fantasize about something. <clears throat> So addiction isn't just about the chemical side, it's about the craving side as well. Now, what happens with alcohol is, so we drink alcohol, it wears off leaving an unpleasant feeling. 
But there's lots of reasons in our lives why we might have an unpleasant feeling. You might have a bad day at work or an argument with your partner or a bill you can't Mm. pay or any one of a million things that is just life on this planet that make you feel unpleasant. Most of the time when you feel unpleasant, you just get on with it. You just keep going through the day and do what you have to do. But through regular drinking, what your brain starts to realise is when you have that unpleasant feeling that kicks in after a drink wears off, if you have another drink, it gets rid of that feeling, makes you feel better again. Now, that's learned behaviour. Right. But when you learn it, the wearing off of every alcoholic drink causes the desire for the next one. So that's what it means when people say, I don't have an off switch. All it means is they've drunk enough alcohol on enough occasions that their brain has made that link between the unpleasant feeling and having another alcoholic drink to get rid of it. Mm, that makes and a lot that's of sense. That, oh, sorry. sorry, yeah, that's where people who don't have that, <laughs> you know, we kind of think of them, oh, they're in inverse commas normal drinkers. It just means they haven't got through that learning process yet. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and we've been speaking to people, lots of different people sharing lots of different stories on this podcast. And one of the things that seems to unite all of us is that we started off with a sense of um, unpleasantness about our general person anyway, before we started to take whichever substance, for all of us, alcohol is one that we've all all taken and Mm. a lot of the time and others. And that then we, we take the substance and it gives us connection. It gives us a feeling of belonging. It numbs out all of the other feelings that we're experiencing through our specific brand of humanness. And I think that's where for me, certainly, and that's what I've taken from reading your book is that actually that accelerated the process, but it didn't mean that I was any more like more predisposed to alcoholism or or substance misuse and abuse than anyone else. It's it's just what happens when you put an, an addictive substance into a body and there is a chemical reaction. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think. Sorry. Sorry, no, go ahead, please. No, no, I was, I was going to say, we. I think alcohol's, the point with alcohol is it's so widely available. So if you are, you know, we, quite often we start drinking in our teens and if you are anxious, you're very self-conscious, quite often as well we start drinking in social occasions because that's where someone turns up with a bottle of whatever. Um, so you're there, you're feeling particularly self-conscious and particularly anxious because you're around a load of other people and then you take, a sedative and it anesthetizes all those feelings of anxiety mm. and nervousness and what are they thinking of me and what do I look like um, and then you feel fantastic because it's just it's anesthetized all of that and I think it's true for you know for anxiety it's true, true for trauma it's a tr- true for a load of different mental health conditions the fact of the matter is any of those things and this is obviously vastly generalizing it but at the end of the day you don't feel good and if you take a sedative, you anaesthetize those feelings of mm. not feeling good. And, and of course, what's the most widely available sedative out there that you can get without a prescription in virtually unlimited quantities? It's alcohol. Yeah. So absolutely, if you've got any of those things, it's just alcohol is the go-to substance to make you feel better. Yeah. Do you know, William, for, for many years, I mean, I had a, an addiction problem for 15 years. Um, I'm now six years sober um, this year. And, wow, well uh, done. Well, yeah. thank you very much. I was waiting for that and it was given. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it feels like a, more than a milestone. It's just, you know, for me, it feels like a way of life now. And I dedicate my life to, you know, like yourself, you, you, you learn and you put it out there and you teach others and you learn from that and you involve yourself in this community and support others learning about this process all of these processes and I love that your scientific approach has given me so much to mull on and chew on and 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 actually feel right about and feel correct about you know it's giving me real scientific reason for me to have gone through that so thank you for that um I used to refer in my stories um in my journey uh to alcohol as a medicine so what you've touched on there is, that, you know, basically, yes, I was looking for a sedative to, I used to call it my best mm. friend, my, my family, my money, it was my confidant, it was my courage, it was my, you know, it was my, God, my leaning post. It, it, mm. it helped me when, when I felt ill, particularly when I felt ill. I drank more when I felt ill. <laughs> you know, yeah, so, yeah. all of this boils down to what is the underlying cause of, of this. And and interestingly, we, we've had another podcast where we went into 
the underlying causes of it being a mental health issue predominantly and that yes we all have this this abil- ability and possibility of becoming an addict you know and and what it is what is it that stops us from becoming for me example for example a street homeless addict or a functioning addict mm-hmm. um you know mental health has a lot to play in this uh, so perhaps people with mental health issues have more of a tendency to tip like you said the tipping balance to mm-hmm. tip into addictive and functioning alcoholic and dependent drinker would you say that was true yeah absolutely i think that there's a fine line here um because i definitely think what you've said is correct and goes back to the reason i mentioned previously if you've got some kind of underlying issue you're more likely to reach out and be constantly reaching out to an available sedative to take the edge off it. So I completely think that's correct. Where I do sometimes disagree with people is I don't think that's necessary though. I think there is a significant, particularly with alcohol, because we're in, you know, what you've described there is, you know, someone with a mental health issue, they find alcohol, it appears on the face of it, at least to give them some relief. So Mm. they constantly go back to it. And so if you look at a population of alcohol dependent people, you will find probably overrepresented people with mental health issues, for example. Mm -hmm. But as I say, where I sometimes disagree with people is I absolutely emphasize that it doesn't have to be the case because I know a lot of people who constantly drank not because of an like a mental health issue but it's just the dumb thing it's what they do um you know we go out and we socialize i know people in my area of work where their job is to go out with clients and drink with them boozy lunches yeah yeah it's (laughs) your job (laughs) it's almost like you know they're on the company credit card they go in they're encouraged to go for lunch and drink all afternoon and evening five days a week and you know that goes on for a decade or so and and Strangely enough, they they end up with an alcohol problem. Of course they do. They're taking an addictive drug regularly. So I think you're absolutely correct. You do find people with mental health issues overrepresented. Yeah. But I think you don't have to have a mental health issue to become addicted to alcohol. You just need to drink it regularly enough. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really important distinction, Um, especially because I see in my, I work in the media and I see in my world a very, very similar thing. Um, and there is this idea of, oh, I, I, there's no one in my family who's an alcoholic. Um, there's no one, you know, there's no, this isn't, I'm fine. That's never going to happen to me. I'm in control. I only drink, uh, even just I only drink a couple of times a week even, or, or I only have one beer a night or, or whatever. Um, and when I read, when I read your book, I, I realized like, wow, like that, First of all, all of the reasons people tell themselves that they're getting from alcohol, all of the benefits that people tell them themselves they're getting from alcohol isn't actually true. And I'd love you to tell us that, like your loan shark analogy, I think is, is excellent. Um, and also at the same time, every single one of those people doing it regularly enough is in danger of developing a dependency. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, I think that's the point there. It's like you, nobody is safe from it. And I did a similar thing. I kind of like, you know, it, particularly when in your early stages of drinking, I think for a lot of people, you know, they don't wake up and want to drink. So you you kind of become blasé with it. So you drink thinking you're safe from it. And of course, it's that kind of drinking that increases or decreases the amount of time it takes to become addicted. So the, the loan shark analogy is basically um, so it's with alcohol it's if you think in terms of good feelings so you know you go out you want an alcoholic drink you have one it makes you feel slightly better but as i said before for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction so whatever sedating anesthetizing you effect you get from a drink you get a corresponding feeling of anxiety when it wears off and then afterwards you have a choice you either then take another drink to get rid of that feeling or suffer the pain from it and that's where the loan shark analogy comes in. It's like borrowing £10 off someone, but you have to pay back 20 And so the next day when you have to pay back 20 do you pay the 20 or do you borrow 20 and then have to pay back 40 And, and that's essentially mm-hmm. what it is. It just accumulates and gets worse and worse. Yeah, I love that. And also in your book, you spoke about um, how we think when we go to a social situation that 
alcohol is what makes us feel good in those social situations when actually that's just part of the human the human condition so can you tell us about that yeah so that's quite an interesting one so humans what well, one of the naturally occurring chemicals um, is endorphins and when your endorphins get released you feel like it's a natural high you feel really good now we get endorphins from various things we get them from like eating a meal when we're hungry we get it from exercise we get it from sex um, and we get it from socializing so it's it's a really interesting thing and I think it kind of tells you I mean it's a fascinating subject anyway because it kind of tells you how much we humans are designed and actually encouraged by the chemicals in our brains to interact with others and share ideas and emotions and experiences. But be that as it may, when you are relaxed and socialising with people, you get an endorphin rush, so you start to feel really, really good. Okay, but I emphasise you need to feel relaxed and socialising, you need to lose yourself in the social interaction. Now, for most of us, when we turn up at a social event, initially, we feel kind of nervous. It was like what we Mm. were talking about before, you're worried about what you look like, what you're going to say, you don't really know people. And it takes a bit of time to settle into it. Now, whether you think you're an introvert or an extrovert, the dynamic is the same. It's just for extroverts, it probably takes a lot less time. And for introverts, it takes a lot longer to relax into that evening um, and to lose yourself in a conversation and then to get that endorphin rush. So when you turn up at a social event and you have alcohol, because it it is a sedative, it can anaesthetize those feelings of nervousness and then allow the endorphins to flow a bit sooner than they otherwise would. And because a lot of us start drinking at social occasions, that wonderful so-called buzz we get from alcohol it's not an alcohol buzz at all. It's an endorphin slash alcohol mm. buzz. And the good feeling of it, that that re, like that high, that feeling really good and really enjoying yourself actually comes from the endorphin side of things. Um, and it's an interesting thing. I mean, obviously don't do it if you stop drinking. Um, but if, if people sit down and drink alcohol outside of their usual situations, Um, and just concentrate on the alcohol, they find it's a very, very different experience. So instead of doing it with friends or, you know, when you're out, you know, just sit at the kitchen table with no TV, no music, no nothing, Mm -hmm. um, and just sit and drink, it's a very, very different experience. It's kind of, you feel a bit tunnel visioned, a bit odd, but it's not particularly enjoyable. Do not try this at home. (laughs) (laughs) William, I'd love to talk about love. I'd love to talk about love with you. Love and relationships. Because, um, you know, my recent findings is that, you know, you, you, you can fall in love. You can have a relationship. And relationships are often warned against in your first year of recovery. You know, they're danger zones. And I never knew why, apart from they're quite emotional and they're quite personal. But I didn't know the real reasoning behind it. And connecting the two by speaking with you today is really interesting in that when we feel feelings of love towards people we get those same chemicals rushing through our body that our body produces when alcohol is introduced so this kind of addictive um nature of of the cortisol the dopamine the the, the, all of the serotonins everything Mm. charging around our body when we feel love is quite dangerous for addicts i mean that that's kind of what we're what we're looking at is that replication of this addictive kind of behavior so now that makes sense to me that relationships are quite you know challenging Mm. for people in recovery and it's something certainly to be really aware of that they are linked quite closely to drinking and addiction but we could also you know, take that philosophy and say, well, you know, chocolate, eating, food addictions, do they release the same chemicals? Is that why all of the addictions are, you know, connected that gambling, sex, food, all of these different addictions release the same human chemicals that we all contain as humans? You know, is that what links every single different type of addiction and unites us in fact? Yeah, I'm not I'm not so much of an an expert on all the other addictions. For me, a lot of it comes down to what we use as coping mechanisms. Because I think one of the problems with alcohol is it being a sedative, we tend to reach for it. I mean, people drink to celebrate, but it tends to become like a crutch when we suffer a bad, you know, you have a bad day or an argument or anything like that. Mm. You tend to reach for a drink to get rid of it. Mm. Um and we develop this very pronounced coping mechanism where any, whenever anything bad happens, 
we tend to try and consume something to change how we feel. Mm. Now, I think that's one of the problems, and this is sometimes where it feeds into this idea of an addictive personality because you have, you know, well, I quit drinking and I my smoking went up through the roof yeah. or my caffeine yeah, intake went up through yeah. the roof or yeah, sugar, all of mm. these things. Um, and, and for me, it's more to do with the fact that when you quit drinking, you need to appreciate that your go-to coping mechanism is gone. Okay. And you will have a bad day because everyone has bad days. And what the tendency is, is if you're, so, so when you're drinking, you have a bad day, you have a drink and that's just Mm. how you deal with it. Then you stop drinking and don't do anything else. And then you have a bad day and suddenly alcohol isn't there. So you start smoking more caffeine or sugar or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, and I think that's why it can appear sometimes that people limp from like one addiction to the other. Mm. It's because they're still working on that mindset of try to consume something to change how you feel. And that's why I think if you're going to quit drinking, you need to anticipate in advance what your coping mechanisms are going to be. And, you know, like sugar is probably better than drinking, but it's not as good as some of the other possible coping mechanisms out there that you yeah. can turn to. Yeah, often in early recovery, we, we refer to it, sorry, as the um, the onion layers that we peel back, the, yeah. the fact we conquer the alcohol, then we find that, oh, you know, food rears its head or gambling yeah. rears its head and you're peeling back that onion, but you're still dealing with the core of that onion being these coping mechanisms that we don't have. Mm. And I think that's something that is really interesting because one of the questions that we've been dealing with within this podcast and I've been thinking about for for years and years and years is why is there such a massive issue with 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 substances particularly alcohol in this country it is a huge part of our cultural identity and I wonder if there is a correlation between culturally being quite emotionally repressed this whole like keep calm and carry on mentality where we don't talk about what's going on for us. We don't share and support one another through things. We we shut down, we numb out, we, we shut out our emotions and, and label emotions as good and bad. And when you start to do that and you don't deal with the fact that emotions are just emotions, it's just a chemical reaction happening inside the body and, and the mind and body talking to each other, when you're not able to be with that, that's when you'll reach for something else to numb out that. And for me, a large part of my investigation into into sobriety has been really really getting present with my own emotions and being comfortable with the whole spectrum of emotion without needing to respond to it, without needing to, to reach for something to numb it out. And in that process has been loads of spiritual investigation, loads of you know, trauma work that it's a very privileged position to have that available and I think a lot of the time if someone is trying to stop and I said this in a group I'm part of if if you're trying to stop doing something and you don't have the tools and you haven't investigated what's actually going on beneath because this is just a symptom yes you're going to reach to something else uh, or or maybe relapse and sometimes Mm. even harder than before um, and it's so important, I think, to to do the work. It's not just a miracle cure to just stop drinking and that's going to be it for you. <laughs> we wish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. It's the the problem is with alcohol is you know the more you drink, the worse you feel for it, and you start to know more and more that it's a problem. But equally, we don't enjoy life without it, and I think that's the key thing for me. It was you know, I knew my drinking was getting completely out of hand, but I would think, yeah, but how can I go on holiday and not drink? How can I go to, Mm. you know, Christmas and not drink? How can I live the rest of my life without a drink? It's just not going to be the same. Mm. And I think that's why people are constantly drawn back with it because when they're drinking, yes, it's a massive problem, but they just can't envisage an enjoyable life without alcohol. So, so for me, it was, you know, cause quite often you hear, you know, when you, you know, if you want to quit anything, it's like make a big long list of all the reasons you want to quit, which is fine, but actually it's a bit more productive to make a list of all the reasons why you can't quit and start demolishing them because mm-hmm. we're very fortunate with alcohol. A lot of these reasons, you know, the ones I was mentioning, like 
I can't enjoy, I won't be able to go on holiday and enjoy myself without a drink. I won't be able to socialize with anyone without alcohol and actually enjoy it. I won't enjoy Christmas and all the rest of it is actually completely false. So when you can demolish those, I think for me, certainly that's that was what was opening the door. That's what opened the door to being able to quit completely um, and know that I'll never go back to it because it's actually I've I've learned now that all of those things are more enjoyable without alcohol. I love that. I love that. I completely I resonated with that because, you know, it, it sounded very much to me like going back to an old abusive relationship, you know, where you keep going back because you've got these rose tinted glasses that that person is the one for you. And, you know, yeah. the reality, the reality was awful, you know, but you're not reminding yourself of that. You're reminding yourself of those glorious times, those amazing times. And it's the same with Christmas and birthdays and holidays and all those momentous occasions, births, deaths and marriages. You know, we all want to pick up a drink and it's very normal to have a drink at a wedding for example and very strange not to have booze at the bar um you know all of this it leads me to believe that you know it's people fearing those situations without a drink without the comfort of holding something you know drinking something that will soothe them it's um it's a fear of being in those situations without your mask or your guard your shield perhaps and maybe you know us as humans are all fear-led uh, behind all of this you know, yes there's a lot of chemicals yes there's a lot of scientific proof but you know all of these are coming down to sort of emotional feelings and fears of being alone abandonment you know guilt shame vulnerability uh, vulnerability huge one you know we're all just vulnerable humans underneath um but it, it's amazing how the way you describe things today it just links up so many other dots for me I don't know it's just it's yeah mental. that's exactly that's exactly how I felt when I read when I read alcohol explained it was just like oh okay this this whole it, it sort of it sort of removed the, my own mask that I was saying to myself which similar to you was was kind of like well for me it was all like how am I going to belong in in the world long term without drinking mm. Like I can do this for, I did it, you know, for nearly two years. And then I started drinking again when I moved to the North, because it's such a huge part of the culture in the North. And I just thought, well, I want to fit in. And like, mm. and I never, and, and also I get frigging tired by 10 o'clock and I want to go to bed. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> granny. And then it's like, and I'm just like, oh, I'm like, I felt like I'm so boring because I want to. You are. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and it's and I think there's going to be so many people listening to this who feel that same way like but mm. I want to fit in and I want to yeah. I don't want to be boring and all these you want to be the life and the soul of the party right <laughs> so I am at 6 a.m oh, after I've had <laughs> yeah. eight to nine hours of sleep <laughs> um so there's I've got a question here that um that kind of links in with all of that like does stopping drinking William really mean the end of fun no, of course not. No. I mean, th th this is something I find really interesting because you've already spoken about how our, our culture really is saturated with alcohol. It's just such a massive part of being British. Um, but there's eight billion people on the planet. OK, approximately half of them don't drink alcohol, be it for religious reasons or money or it's just not wow. available. There's four billion people on the planet who live their lives without alcohol. Mm. They have fun. That's the point. <laughs> Hello out there. <laughs> God, I <laughs> got a lot. But this of is friends. the thing because because we're so saturated with alcohol in this country, we can't imagine people like really living and enjoying themselves without a drink. But of course, they do. These people get married, they go on holiday, they have a fantastic time, they laugh, they do things with their friends, and they have a wonderful mm. time. And I think that's another reason why we're so lucky to be where we are now. Because ten years ago the sober movement was a fraction of what it is now. Mm. Now it's huge. Now there's like, there's sober meetups. I've been on so many sober meetups. So these are things where you go out with people who don't drink. And yeah. it's just so nice because, you know, you can go out and socialize without drinking. But one of the problems I find is when you're not drinking, you realize how incredibly irritating drunk people are <laughs> really <Yeah>. annoying, so, <laughs> really annoying. <laughs> embarrassing embarrassing would be yeah, my no, favorite word for them yeah yeah it's it's and so like I, I kind of at the moment 
if I'm going out with people who don't drink, I'm absolutely fine. I enjoy the whole thing. If I'm going out with people who are drinking, I do have a very specific cutoff time. And it's usually two to three hours in when the alcohol starts to become yeah. noticeable and they start to you know, stand too close and spit when they're talking. And, and that's about oh, the time I just disappear. Back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I can completely, completely um, relate to that. And and actually, our previous guest spoke about the word sober um, and uh, how he has a real problem with that word because actually, naturally, human beings are not not intoxicated with alcohol. And you don't call children sober. You don't go, oh, that child is so sober. So like sober. it's just, a, it's just, a, it's just a, a person doing its person thing. And sober yeah. actually has really negative. If you look at what sober means outside of the context of of alcohol and, and other drugs, it, it means like you call something sobering if it was kind of like. It's not, it's not a good thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, depressing and really serious, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And so I really think, and and you know, not for today, but I re we really we've been talking so much about the importance of being aware of the language we use around this because it is it 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 can be and is such a joyful experience. It's not this like serious, boring thing that we've kind no, of no. A, a, a sentence that we've put upon ourselves because we're no longer drinking alcohol. Yeah, and I think for me, recovery was about learning that I can go to these things and enjoy these things with my mm. four billion friends. You know, I, 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 I have a great time. I, you know, but there are many things that I've gone to and, and I've really enjoyed and it surprised me. So, you know, our, our message to, to all our listeners is, is always to kind of go out there and, and try these things soberly, try a week without alcohol, you know, in, in, in after our conversation today you know try that bit longer because your body does mm. need time to heal after a, a boozy night out don't they yeah and yeah. and honestly we have not been paid to say this but if you are <laughs> struggling and i have been in the investigation and the struggle for many 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 years and i honestly would say first of all quitlet generally is an incredible resource it's it's so brilliant what's to, it called Quitlet. Quit that's what the cool kids call it. Be careful with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Um, but the alcohol explained really was um was a game changer because the way that you the way that you have written the book is so scientific and so matter-of-fact, and there is no emotion in there whatsoever, which I think will appeal to a lot of people who um are kind of turned off by the emotional side of the whole process and turned off by the idea of a, a being an addict or being an alcoholic it really is so accessible and so irrefutable mm. like I've been saying it to my partner like sorry but you're a human and if you're a human this is what happens to you mm. so <laughs> you're not like a magic unicorn human you're a human human um so I really recommend reading it because it, it for me by the end of the book it was just like oh I don't want to do that anymore like oh yeah like no thank you I'm a, I'm all right um and that that is that's the joyful easy way to quit something is to understand what it really is realize that it's all a complete conspiracy and that it's not what we've been told it is mm. and then it's like a no-brainer that you don't want to put that in your body <laughs> yeah exactly I think I think that certainly that was it for me it's like you know, I've, I've said this a few times, but, you know, if you've got something that's really enjoyable and it's a crucial part of socialising and you need it to enjoy holidays and Christmas and all the rest of it, of course, it's going to be incredibly difficult to give up. But if you've got something that's none of those things, then it's much easier to walk away from it. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And, and Jerry, I just want to uh, pass, uh, let the listeners know that actually your book is rated, I believe, 4.6 on Amazon reviews. I, oh, I'm telling you, I think it is. Um, I, I yeah. had a look through, and I was quite, I was quite amazed at how many people were reacting so positively. Because I've seen other books go out there and really struggle because people think that you know the author is opinionated or they're putting their projections onto people. But like Sophie said, yours is not a projection of of you. It's it's knowledge in its fact and it's scientific. And yeah, again, I would recommend it absolutely for anybody who wants to delve that bit deeper than than this conversation today. Um, mm. So do have a look on on Amazon for that one. Yes, uh, but not. 
sponsored. Uh, we, we, William, we are on our rapid fire final section, if you don't mind. So okay. we're looking for rapid fire answers. Right. Okay. Um, so <laughs> no pressure. Uh, the first question is, what do you enjoy doing in your free time now? Right. So exercising and reading mainly. Excellent. And what's your one piece of advice that you'd give to someone who's sober curious? Um, keep being curious and learn. That's that's the main thing. Oh, Analyze. The curiosity <laughs> killed the cat, but keep curious, cats. Um, finish this sentence. Addiction is? Horrible. Horrible. <laughs> True. Um, recovery is? Fantastic. I love that. Fantastic. Um, what more do you think can be done to raise awareness and support for people who are having issues with addiction and substance misuse? I think it needs to be more understood that it's not the individual, it's the substance that is the problem, because I think we still have this massive hangover that, you know, there are addicts and alcoholics and mm. there's something spiritually or genetically wrong with them, mm. um, as opposed to it's a drug that's addictive. Love that. Um, um, what better can we do to support people in the sober community, do you think? I think so. <sighs> Must remember this is a short fire question. Um, mm, we're lenient. I think providing more and more community, like for people who don't drink, so to get people in contact with each other. Because as I said, one of the most empowering things for me is to go out with people and socialise with them who aren't drinking because I always thought I was really antisocial <laughs> what I actually learned was I'm actually fairly sociable but I have to be with people I like and get on with <laughs> so. yeah <laughs> that's, a, that's a nugget of truth right there and finally what do you wish you'd known at the beginning of your sober journey that you know now when I quit I still thought there were parts of my life I wouldn't enjoy as much. I knew that drinking had got to the stage where it had to stop. And then I thought, right, fine. I won't enjoy socialising as much as I used to do. Like, there's certain things I won't enjoy. And I think having found out that that isn't the case is, is incredibly encouraging. Amazing. William, you have been amazing today. Oh, thank you so much thank for coming you. on and sharing your wisdom. Pleasure. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast has been brought to you by Horizon, a non-profit that provides film and media training to people in recovery from addiction. To find out more about Horizon, you can visit our website at www.myhorizon.rocks or follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Horizon Brighton. <laughs>